This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. So yes, today I am talking to Etta Broderson, who is a PhD level clinical forensic psychologist. Her research and clinical work involves individuals in the justice system. Uh, She works at an outpatient clinic for provincial offenders who were convicted for sexual or sexually motivated offenses and are serving their probation orders. Um, She did want to point out that she's not a child psychologist. She's trained to work with teens and adults, but she does have knowledge within child psychology, attachment theory, and developmental psychology. So I had a quick question for you. People's reaction, like what is people's typical reaction when you say that you work with people who have sexual offenses? Oh, that's a fun one. Yeah, I don't get the best reactions to that one, Yeah, considering that it is a huge stigmatized population. Um, most of the time, so for my neighbors and whatnot, I normally just tell them that I'm a forensic psychologist and that I work just generally with offenders. Right. And I normally don't tell people specifically the sexual offender component unless they seem to show interest in working with the offenders. Mm-hmm. So, but most of the time people are... Like, I get a lot of comments like, oh, like, I guess you must not have children because how could you work in that population if you have children? Right. And I get a lot of like, oh, like, basically a lot of very negative comments about, yeah, they should just be locked up forever. I don't even understand why you're doing that work. There's no going back after you've hurt someone in that way. So a lot of very, like, punitive kind of yeah, viewpoints, which is understandable. Yeah. But it's definitely one where it it is hard to balance doing my work and promoting my work with the stigma and then the public reaction that I do get from right. working in a very stigmatized field. And so just briefly, like, can you just explain why working with this population? I, this is not on the outline, by the way. I was just really curious. Like, and I think it's, <laughs> I think it's important for people. Going rogue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's important for people to know like why this work is important and why the research is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, like that is something that I talk about quite a bit. So when I actually got into this work, um, so most of my training is actually with youth offenders. So almost all my research, almost all my publications are based around youth and When I got into this field, um, I actually, during my undergrad, I was actually a chemistry major, chemistry and math. Fancy that. And then I worked in a group home for youth offenders as kind of my income to pay for my my tuition. And the youth that were there were mostly sexual offenders, but there was other sorts of offenses. And they had been just released from jail. Their families did not want them back in the house for whatever reason. So they're in group homes awaiting basically for when they could go out on their own or when someone would foster them and working with these kids like you just you see this whole other human side to it you don't see what they did you see that they're people that were victims of their own circumstances Mm -hmm. so barely any of the people that I worked with were these malicious like hateful people that were intentionally doing these things in order to harm someone else 
It was they had all these negative components that brought them to where they were. So just kind of working with them and seeing them at this human level made me want to get into forensic psychology so that I could work with offenders and help them tackle all the burdens and demons that brought them to where they were to help them become functionally people within society, to reintegrate with society and actually contribute back in positive ways. So it's definitely one where like it's, it's a needed field. There's not a lot of us in it. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested listeners, you know, look into it. There's definitely a lot of work, but it's one where to me, offenders are human beings and all of us deserve to have the resources given to us to try to succeed in the best way possible. So yeah, that's basically why I got into this area. Because um, some people might think like, you know, why, why should we spend, you know, funding money on research like this? And it's like, well, you know, you need to know more about the area, like why this is happening and how to prevent it. And like, it's important. So, okay, I'll get back on track now. I was just curious about that stuff. Um, so the first major topic that we're going to talk about is body autonomy. And I told my husband this morning, I was like, oh, I'm recording the body autonomy episode today. And he was like, oh, what's body autonomy? And I was like, I don't know, Google it. Like, because I feel like I know, but I'm not good at explaining it. So can you just explain to us what it is specifically? Yeah, and it's one where it's understandable for like the, just Google it response, because this is a huge area. Um, and it's based off of, so there's general autonomy. And that's a fancy word that I kind of relate to independence. So it's being in control of yourself. And it's not black and white. It's a spectrum. Mm. Um, people aren't autonomous or not autonomous. It's like any other trait that we have as human beings. It's something that we vary on. And in terms of general autonomy, people often view it as like an internal drive that directs your behavior. So it can be eating, sleeping, clothing, self-care, physical activities. So anything in your life that you do where you show mastery over an area, and it could be like your mind, your body, your environment. So anything like that your free will allows you is kind of general autonomy. But then when you look specifically at bodily autonomy, it is a subsection of autonomy. And it's our human right to be in charge of what happens to our body. It's our right to develop and to assert our personal boundaries for our body and to take control of our bodies. So, yeah, it's one where it's very nuanced kind of area. So in the outline here, we have outcomes related to focusing on this in children. So mm -hmm. what what does can you just go over that a little bit? Oh, for sure. So one of the things that I find really interesting when you're looking at autonomy and bodily autonomy is that if you're looking at like the pop media, it's viewed as this really new, innovative idea. Like, oh, we should be letting kids like be in control of decisions that impact them. Um, but then I was doing some research, as we do, and so there's some really massive research studies on this area that were done in like the late 70s, early 80s. So that predates my birth, I know. I'm pretty sure it predates most of the listeners' births as well. So mm -hmm. it's crazy to me that autonomy and parenting has been around forever and has been pushed forever, like in terms of like this is over 40 years ago, and it's still just now becoming more mainstream. 
So back in the 80s, there is this study, I think it was cited close to 10,000 times, like big study we're talking here. And it was looking at the positive outcomes of autonomy for children, like elementary school age children, and as they aged. And they found that children that had autonomy support, so it's one where it's really hard to test whether kids have autonomy or not, but you can test what's been done in terms of what programming they have received and how their parents talk to them. Mm -hmm. And children that had autonomy support in their lives had more intrinsic motivation. So they're more internally motivated to do tasks. Um, They had greater interest in the world. So they're more curious. They had less pressure and tension. So lower anxiety, lower mental health concerns. They're more creative, more cognitively flexible. So that's kind of the problem solving. So they had better problem solving skills. Um, they had higher emotional intelligence and more emotional tone, higher self-esteem. And it just kind of went on. Like those are only about half the outcomes that they looked at. So overall, higher autonomy support with children, any positive outcome that you can think of more than likely can be linked back in some way to this concept. Right. And it makes sense if you think about it, if autonomy is like you know, having control. And, you know, when I hear that, I think of like being confident and, you know, like being able to, like you said, they were more curious about the world. Like that just all makes perfect sense uh, to me. So when it comes to bodily autonomy, what are some ways that we can kind of foster that in our children? Because a lot of the listeners have young kids and, you know, it might not be something that they necessarily think about or know is important, but I know like after our conversation that we had a little while ago, it's something that I really am thinking about now just in our interactions with Milo. Um, so yeah, what are some ways that parents can foster this in young children? Yeah. So there are so many ways. Um, but I'm like, there's two ways that I, think are the easiest ones to implement and kind of get you the more bang for your buck. Um, So first of all, start like whenever you possibly can. So if you look at when autonomy really picks up in, in the terms of development, it's between one and three years of age. So it's kind of like the toddler tantrum ages and there's a lot of power struggles. And if you're looking like that's actually, um, yeah, when you really should be starting this is between one and three. Um, I personally recommend that you should kind of start working on this topic before the children really have language that you have time to train yourself. Mm. And I know it's one I have, my daughter is now nine months old and she is very much a baby, but we use these different techniques with her and not because it's good for her yet. Since again, she just looks at me whenever I give her, like whenever I do these other things, (laughs) it's just like, yeah, you're saying words to me. (laughs) And that's fun, but it's for the, under one years old, I'm training myself. Right. Like these are techniques that I teach. I teach to my clients, but I need to train myself still. So if you're having a hard time with this listeners, like this is my area and it's difficult. It's difficult to change how you speak to kids. So number one, huge one is giving choices. So, and this is kind of thing, giving choices whenever you can to your children, when there's things to do with their bodies, especially. It helps build body confidence and it helps build a sense that they are in charge in some ways of what happens to them. So these are things so like the low hanging fruit are kind of getting dressed. So getting dressed in the morning, what outfit do they want to wear? Mm. And this isn't saying in the middle of winter wear a sundress, (laughs) 
It's saying that, you know, if you're getting dressed, pull out a couple options. Be like, oh, it's cold out. Here's two sweaters. Which sweater do you want to wear? Oh, here's some pants that match the sweater that you picked. Which pants do you want? And giving them controlled choices, basically, is one really great way that you can, um, with the really young guys, start fostering this. And then with the older ones, let them pick. If they want to wear the sundress, be like, cool, but you have to wear a sweater and pants. Like, yeah. it's So that's kind of one area. Another one, the huge one, is bathing. So let kids take control of their self-care whenever they start showing that potential skill. So as soon as it's age appropriate. So babies, obviously, you have to do the care. They can't do that. But as soon as they can wash their hair or brush their hair, allow that. When they can take some role in brushing their teeth, allow them to do that. Mm. I know with my daughter, like, toothbrushing, like, we can rant about toothbrushing. Like, it is Awful. our own personal <laughs> hell as parents, I believe. Um, but I, I give my daughter personally, like, and again, she's nine months. She's a baby. I give her her toothbrush. She chews on it, and she looks at me, and she has a great time. And then I take it back, and I try to get a couple little scrubs in. Yeah. And because she has some teeth through, but it's one where step one, I let her take charge. Step two, I come in and do damage control. Right. Same with, um, she's actually, she's pretty good with skills. So she can actually brush her hair. Now she knows how to use a brush. Um, not well, but so when we brush hair, I give her her brush. She gives it a couple like little strokes in the wrong direction. And then my nerves are like, oh my gosh, you just wrecked your hair. But I take the brush, I give the final little things. So, but again, I give her the choice first to do whatever she wants in terms of her self-care. And for bathing as well, especially for cleaning, as soon as they can clean their hair, let them. As soon as they can clean their genitals, let them. And just, yeah, giving that control over to them. Another one that I see quite often is food. So it's the same thing. Which snack do you want? It's your body. Do you want to eat? Do you not want to eat? Do you want to eat X? Do you want to eat Y? So it's just everything in your day to day, whenever you can give a choice, give a choice. And it helps kids understand that they have a say in what happens to their body. Honestly, giving choices has changed our life. Like Milo, he can go from like, you know, oh, like, do you want, um, like, let's say I'm trying to get him to eat something. He'll be like, no, no, like freaking out, like, you know, doesn't want to eat and I'm frustrated. And now I can just go, even if I get literally two of the same thing and hold it up and say, okay, which one do you want? Then all of a sudden he gets a big smile on his face (laughs) and he'll choose one and then he'll eat it. And it's like, it's so, it's such a simple thing to change, but it's like you said, you have to get used to doing it. Yeah, and anything involving changing your own behavior, like, whoo, because most of us, we've been around for many decades. Like, we are used to how we talk. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. As you said, it's hard, but important. So, but yeah, so given choices is definitely one of the ones that's top. And I think you had a speech language pathologist on that was talking about giving choices as well, right? Like, ages ago. So, yeah, think about it. Two birds with one stone help language development and help bodily autonomy. Super exciting. So, (laughs) neither here nor there, but yeah, that's pretty good. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. 
And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. Um... So the other area um, is touching, physical contact, and affection. So in regards to how you can do this for parenting, it's basically a kid has a say over their body and that no means no. So you really have to reinforce the idea in your children that they own their body and they get to say what happens to their body, especially in regard to physical touch and being touched by anyone, being touched by their friends, family members, whoever, they get a say over what happens. So there are some common mistakes that people make in applying the no means no rule. So the main three are that they ignore boundaries, they make exceptions to the body rules, and they try to make the child the first line of defense. So I'll break down each of these ones separately. But in regards to ignoring boundaries is that a child will put a boundary in place and we might force them to ignore that boundary or we force them to do behavior that they didn't want to do. So maybe it's that they're at the playground and there's a kid that they really don't want to play with. And you say, oh, go play with Johnny. And they're like, well, you know, Johnny's a little bit rough. I don't want to play with Johnny. And you're like, oh no, I'm talking with Johnny's mom. So go, go play with Johnny. So we ignore a boundary. Another really big one for ignoring boundaries is in the context of play. So one of the big one is tickling. So tickling is a really fun game. A lot of kids enjoy being tickled, but as adults, we can take tickling too far. So you might be tickling a kid and they're saying, laughing, enjoying it. And then they say, no, no, stop, stop. 
and some people will keep going. So I know when I was a kid, that was kind of the game. Like an adult would be tickling, you'd say, no, stop. They'd keep tickling you. They'd be like, no, no, seriously, stop. And you keep getting tickled. And then the game turns and it's no longer fun. So in regards to tickling, um, you can make the, a start-stop game out of it. So you can make it so that you can tickle. And then as soon as they say stop, you put your hands up and you're like, oh, I'm stopping. And then they're like, okay, go. And then you can tickle again and then say, oh, stop. So then you stop again. And that sort of game teaches them that they have a say not only over what happens to their body, but they have a say over your actions in regard to their body. So then it also teaches them what a respected adult, an adult that respects them, that will stop if their body's being touched in a way that they don't want it being touched. My husband tickles Milo all the time. And I just said this to him the other day because Milo laughs and laughs like it's he's like hysterical. He thinks it's amazing. But then as soon as he starts saying like, no, 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 daddy, like while he's laughing, my husband keeps going. And the other day I stopped him and I was like, when he's saying no, we have to stop. And he was like, looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, no, it's important. Like he's saying no. And like, to me, I don't find tickling funny at all. Like it's like, I hate it. I hate being tickled. So Mm -hmm. I like project my hate of being tickled onto Milo. And so when he's like, no, no, I'm like, oh my God, just stop tickling him, please. So now moving forward, I like this stop and go game. Like that's awesome. Yeah. Cause it's one where it's still fun for the adult, but it also teaches, (laughs) teaches the boundaries. And it's one where like, like you, like I do not like being tickled. Like if I could just do a big general stop, never tickle me ever, I would most definitely put that rule in place. So yeah, because everyone has different boundaries with it. Yeah, that's a great example. So yeah, just like play this clip for your husband over and over again. Just just, just be like the background music. So it'll be be wonderful for him. Great, great for the relationship, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so the other one was making exceptions to body rules. So a lot of people try to make exceptions to no means no for parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, family, friends, um, people that are kind of like in your immediate social circle where it's kind of potentially awkward for the parent to have when the kid's like, I don't want to hug Grammy and Grampy. And then you're like, oh, crap. Yeah. Like, what do I do? You're rocking a hard place here. So I know some parents will veto the child's boundary that they set up. The child might say, I don't want to hug them. And you're like, oh, well, it's just your grandma. Like, go give them a hug. Like, Grammy wants a hug. She loves you. Go hug hug your Grammy. And like, I, I can get where that's coming from, especially like I have my daughter. My daughter is slow to warm up for people. And she's a COVID baby. So she doesn't see her grandparents very often because of all yeah. of our border closing, whatever else is happening up here in Canada. And when my parents come down, like they want hugs, they want snuggles. I get it, but she's slow to warm. So it's one where I have to make sure that when she's like hiding her head and not wanting to be touched by anyone other than me, I don't force her to be touched by other people. And it's hard when my my mother's there. I love my mother. She loves my grand, like her granddaughter. And she just wants a hug. And I have to be like, you're going to have to wait until she says it. It's okay. And yeah, it's, it's awkward. It is so awkward. But it's so important because by vetoing their autonomy, it sends a really dangerous message. And what it says is that they only have control over the body some of the time and that different adults get to veto their autonomy. And you don't want vetoes in place. 
especially I know like later on we'll be talking a bit more about sexual safety but just like little snippet in here is that we know that most of the offenses that happen against children are by those trusted adults in a child's life so like 90% of the time it is a parent a family member a family friend so you really want to make sure that you don't make exceptions for those people in your close circle since if anything were to happen those are the people who would be involved so they can't veto now so that they don't veto later if that makes sense but so that's a fun one i know it's awkward and i guess start young so you can practice it for when they're older and because this will be an issue ongoing um the very last mistake that people make in this area is that they try to make the child be the first line of defense and they are a child. They are not the first line of defense for anything. You are the advocate for your child as they learn the skill, as they learn how to set boundaries, as they learn how to enforce boundaries. So you really have to be the one that protects their right to voice their autonomy. So some of the skills that you can use are you can give options for how to express affection. So maybe if your mother is over and they want to give your daughter a hug, and your daughter is like, nope, I'm not okay with it. You can say, oh, well, like, you know, you can also like give a high five or give a wave or even just smile. So give options for how to express affection. And that way the person who's asking for affection knows, okay, these are options that the child has been given for what is okay ways to express affection. And the child also knows, oh, I got options. I don't have to hug if I don't want to. I have these other ones that I can do. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of an easy thing to do, hopefully. But again, got to practice. Other one is that you should explain to people that you don't force your child to engage in physical contact if they don't want to. And again, this can be awkward. Um, I personally try to do this not in front of my child because again, I, right now she's a baby, not always going to be a baby. So it's training me for how to have these conversations with family and how to have these conversations with friends. And just saying, you know, I, I don't force her. I really want her to learn how to have control over her body and that when she expresses things to do with her body, that is to be respected. So as such, I'm not going to force her to hug if she doesn't want to. This is what I'm going to do instead. And again, it can be an awkward conversation, especially with family. But if they get on the same page with you, it means that later on, hopefully you won't have to have this conversation over and over again. Um, another one that you can always do for those side conversations is correcting how people express or ask for affection. So if you, someone says, if you love me, then you'd give me a hug. Um, that's not okay. So you should never have an if then. So there should never be, you would give me physical contact in some way to show an emotion. So but yeah, so just really reinforcing that these contingencies are not an okay way to show language to your child in terms of showing affection, because the if-then statements are really similar to grooming behavior. So you don't want your child hearing that sort of thing from trusted adults, because then they think it's normal as they get older. So those are kind of the main ways for physical touch and affection that even for us, like if we're thinking about it, not like for our own children, but you know, if we're going to a friend's house and they have young kids, you know, like it's good for us to know not to do that to other people's children as well. So instead of like, it's probably important to ask a child, 
like, oh, can I have a hug? Like, as opposed to um, like demanding it or, you know, asking in a, like you were saying, like with the if or, you know, even just going up and grabbing them and hugging them. Um, so yeah, like, because it makes me think about like, yeah, like people should be asking, like we ask to pet someone's dog. So, <laughs> you know, it should be the same thing. Children should have the same respect yes. as a pet. Yeah. Frig. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. Like it's a wonderful add on that. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, just wonderful add on. Yeah. Wonderful. Good job. I'm oh, thanks. Um, so with regard to the the skill building techniques, um, there was four things. So conversation, practice, modeling, and cueing. Um, did you want to just go over what those are? Yeah. So these are, they're basically therapy 101 type skills. Um, if you've ever been to therapy and had CBT um, or, or DBT or any of those kind of BT kind of therapy approaches, it's really focused on skill building. So these are the four ways that, yeah, we know skills kind of get built the best. So in regards to teaching skill building for bodily autonomy, uh, conversation is one of the best starting points. So these are things basically kind of just talking to your kids about it and like, don't make a big deal out of it. You can integrate in your everyday activities. So, and basically the main point is that you're trying to tell your kids that it's their body. They have a say of what happens to their body. Um, so but there's things like you can read books. And I know we were talking about books that didn't really like age very well um, in the past. So if yeah. you're reading a book and there's something that's happening to a character, so maybe a character is getting hugged and they don't really want to be hugged. You can say, oh, like, I don't know if that's like good because, you know, so-and-so doesn't look happy. What should they have done instead? So kind of like editing children's book after the fact with a conversation with your child is like kind of one way you can do it. You can also like if they get to a kid, like a friend's house and they just like run over and give them a hug, you can also be like, oh, remember, like we always like, like have a conversation or we always ask your friend to so like go into like why. So just kind of like those conversations, just everyday life, things that happen, you have a little combo, a little, little sidebar with your child. Yeah. Um, and I also like, I, the, the other day, um, in between us talking, I was outside in like the freezing cold in the backyard and my neighbors have a five-year-old and he is hilarious. Like he is very <laughs> vocal. Um, and you can tell that she's been really working on bodily autonomy and really working on feelings and like all those things. And she had said that it was time to come inside. And he said, I don't want to come inside and it's my body. So it's my choice. <laughs> and <laughs> I was there in the back and I started laughing, obviously. And I was like, oh God, I hope they can't hear me laughing. Um, but like, it, I thought it was hilarious because like, yeah, okay, kid, it's, it's your body. So it's your choice. But you may be like over applying that concept a little <laughs> bit here. Um, but it was one that I liked that he had a little motto. So they obviously, they had had a conversation yeah. and- they had said, you know, this is a thing that you can say if there's something happening to your body that you don't want to be happening to. Just say it's my body is my choice. And, you know, he's using it. It's his trump card. But I thought that that having the conversation and getting a little motto or a mantra was like really, well, it was adorable for me as the neighbor who was not experiencing it as a parent, but it seemed really simple and effective. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was cute. Mm -hmm. um, the other component is practice. So... 
you don't want to teach the skills and teach the child no means no, or when you say stop that we stop and then just send them out into the real world. You want to kind of engage in some role players and pretend play around it. So it's a thing like what we said with the tickling game, like that's a really good example of practice. And then you could also have it so maybe your child is on the playground and another child does something to their body that they don't like. Maybe they got pushed, maybe they had their hair pulled. And you can do role play after to kind of be like, oh, like, I'm going to pretend to pull your hair. Like, what what should you say? And maybe it's, it's my body, so it's my choice, like what my neighbor's kid said. Yeah. So but yeah, just kind of getting them to practice it in a fun way so that they have those skills kind of in their back brain for when they're out and about and something happens and they have that skill like on hand. Um, there is um, a TikTok that I, I was watching the other night called Once, I think it's Once Upon a Mama. And she has a lot of examples of this, like basically half her TikToks are just her showing examples of how you can practice um, applying bodily autonomy. Awesome. So like she has way more than I could ever provide. I will, I'll put the link for her profile. I'll put it in the episode notes. Yeah, because she's, uh, I find her fun. So hopefully other people do too. Yeah. But yeah, she has way more examples than I could ever list. So definitely look there. Um. So yeah, and then the other one is modeling. So modeling is basically kids learn in different ways. So you can tell them things. You can do the role play. These are really good ways that kids learn, but you also should model. So this is kids watching you apply the concepts that you're trying to teach them. So, and this also teaches them that, yeah, they have autonomy over their bodies, but other people have autonomy over their own bodies. Mm. So that, like, that's like mind blowing for a lot of kids, yeah. especially if you see like five-year-olds or so. And within that one, like, like, yeah, they control their body, but they control everyone else's body. Like it's, it's a developmental phase that they go through. So teaching them both sides of that are really important. So in terms of the child, you can model it. So if your child says no, you respect the no. And you're calm about it. You accept it. You don't try to bargain with them. You just are like, well, you set a boundary and I will respect it. If you decide that you do want want a hug, I will give you a hug then. So, and that teaches them how a trusted adult should respond if they set a boundary. And if a trusted adult does not respond in that way, then that is not a trusted adult. So, and then the other way is that as the parent, you can express your own bodily autonomy. So I know like I get touched out. I spend my entire day with a barnacle of a baby clinging on to me and like, yeah, she's cute, but I need to trim her claws because they're like digging into my skin sometimes. And I don't want to be touched at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's pretty common. Um, So modeling that you have control over your own body is something. So, but like I had um, one of my girlfriends, she has a 20, like 22, 23 month old. So a child with language and which is key since you want to make sure these conversations and modeling are age appropriate. And her daughter is um, breastfeeding and has gotten very possessive over my friend's body. So the other day she was pointing at my friend's chest and she was like, me like mine, like these are mine. I was like, Oh, those are not yours child. Um, and my friend was like, she was really calm about it. And she's like, no, like, these are my breasts. They're part of my body. I let you use them, but that does not mean that they are yours. Mm. Like I allow you to use them. And her child, like, you know, she kind of thought about it and then was like, okay. And then ran off and like continued doing kid things. Yeah. But 
I thought that was a really good way to say like, no, this is my body, respect my body. I get a say for what happens to my body. So yeah, so it's kind of like just integrating that into a teachable moment that was age appropriate. And again, that changes throughout the course of the day. So maybe like your husband comes home from work He's like, oh, give me a hug. Like, so great to see you. And you're like, you know, actually, I'm, I'm a little touched out right now. Like, maybe a hug later. But right now, I kind of want my space. Yeah. That's also modeling that you have control over your autonomy. Oh, yeah. I model so, that all the time in the morning. If I haven't had my coffee, like, don't get in my face and try and give me a kiss. Like, every morning, I'm like, can I just live for 25 minutes and drink my coffee, please? <laughs> so I definitely model autonomy over my body for sure wonderful yeah <laughs> very strongly and you yeah. make sure that's respected <laughs> so yeah strong confident woman right yeah so yeah so it's when we're like yeah teachable moments just show how it should be done and then kids they're great at picking up what they see and applying those sorts of things so very last one is cueing so this is basically we also call it scaffolding in psychology so and it's basically helping children apply concepts and it's cueing in so we also call it cueing in vivo so basically in real life a child is in a situation where they can express their bodily autonomy and maybe they're freezing maybe they're trying to remember what you talked about so you give them like the little push so maybe they're looking at like your the Grammy sweater, it looks really soft. They really want to sink their little hands in it. And you can tell that they're looking at them and they're like, I want to put my hands in that like fluffy pink sweater or whatever it is. You can say, oh, like you just ask Grammy if you want to touch it. It's a cue. It's reminding them, ask this, ask. Or maybe you're going to the friend's house and you've knocked on the door and you say, oh, remember, you have to ask your friend if they want to have a hug before you give them a hug. Hello. Mm. So just the little reminders in order for the child to be like, oh yeah, I, I know this skill. I can apply this skill. Yeah. So those are the four main ways that we do skill building and skill learning within therapy concepts. And also it really is applicable for teaching children skills as well. Yeah. I love it. Cause it's just simple little changes, but you know, you need to like practice it and practice it and take, like, look at things that happen throughout the day, look at it as an opportunity to, you know, teach them, to cue them, to, so it's, it's something that we need to get used to as well, because we're not used to doing that. But as soon as you get, you start doing it and you see the benefits to doing it, I think it's easier to keep doing it. Um, you think about it more. Exactly. Um, okay. So, yeah, and the more you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals, so you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. 
The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, you are going to love it, and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner. They have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangler, which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolavie.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. So the next part of this episode is gonna revolve around sexual and body safety. So trigger warning, I'm gonna put a trigger warning and you know all that in the episode notes as well. But if you're listening and this is something that maybe you don't wanna hear about or it's uncomfortable for you, um, this is where we're gonna talk about those things. So first off, What is childhood sexual abuse? Childhood sexual abuse is the involvement of a child in a sexual activity that they don't really fully comprehend. They're unable to give informed consent to, um, and the child's not developmentally prepared um, for, or that violates laws or societal taboos are kind of the main components that we look at. All right. And so the key points, because there were some some like oh my stats yeah the stats that's (laughs) the word I was looking for like the the key stats that are actually like jaw-dropping I think um so can you share those with us yeah so these are the ones that yeah people get a little bit more uncomfortable about so number one is that sexual offending has a really high prevalence rate and if you actually try to look up how like the incident rates for sexual offending, it it varies so widely because of we know like sampling errors and like different sampling concerns that we know from a statistics level that happen. But overall, if you look worldwide, um, about 18% of females and 8% of males experience sexual abuse as a child. But if you look USA only, um, when again, like you, you and I are in Canada. So this is a stat that Um, Canada kind of falls in between these two stats. But USA, it's about 27% of females and 16% of males experience childhood sexual abuse. And Canada falls in between those two options. So it's basically, if you look kind of on the conservative end, one in five females, one in 10 males experience unwanted sexual contact, which could constitute sexual offending. 
So the main things to take home from that, boys and girls both get offended against, and it's it's shockingly common for these sorts of things to happen. So that's the first step that I like to have on people's radars. Since a lot of people think like, oh, it's like, it's rare. Or other people think, oh, every single person's been offended against. So you kind of, people kind of fall on both ends. But overall, these are the more accepted stats. The other stat that people get really uncomfortable around is that 90% of the time, and like this is give or take 5%, but around 90% of the time, the person who offended against a child was known to that child. So most often it's uncles, parents, um, siblings actually are about a third of the time um, that a, a child is offended against. It is like a teenager who's like a sibling, cousin, that sort of thing, and family, friends. So as a society, we tend to over-focus on strangers and stranger danger. So we think like, oh, like there's a creep, like that guy down the road who like mows his lawn too many times a day or whatever, like he's really creepy. Like, I think like that guy is going to offend. Or we always picture like the white van, like driving down the road. Oh, that person's going to offend. And like, maybe, but 90% of the time, it's someone that you know and someone that you trust. Yeah, And I feel like that's because of the news, first of all, yeah, because it doesn't Ugh. get reported. Like on the news, it's not like a big news story that, you know, someone got offended against, um, you know, in some family somewhere. So it's not, but they are going to report if it's like, oh, there's been a white van going through this neighborhood, like be careful. So that's the news. And it's also probably TV shows. Like we're not, you know, that's like what we're trained to be afraid of. It's like, oh, the creepy person or like the stranger, as opposed to people that are, like you said, like siblings and, you know, um, family members. Yeah, exactly. The media is not our friend yeah. on this one at all. Because as you said, it's more sensational. It's going to sell, well, it's not going to sell more papers because no one buys papers anymore, but you'll, you'll, you'll get more clicks Clicks for yeah. those. Yeah. The more like, oh, the, yeah, the van driving around, that's going to attract more attention than, oh, someone's uncle offended against them. Like yeah. that's like, unfortunately doesn't drive as much attention, but then that also serves the purpose of it keeps children unsafe Mm. since people don't know who to look out for yeah so fun times but another component with this is that people also because of the white van kind of idea they think that their child will get abducted and something's going to happen to them outside of the home but we actually know 80 percent of the time the offenses that occur are in the home of the offender or in the home of the child crazy so it's yeah, like these like stats are like, I think that they're mind blowing. I remember learning them for the first time and thinking like, ooh, like I didn't realize the numbers were like that. But it's one like it's important to know in order for keeping your child safe that yeah, more likely they're going to be offended against in your house. More than likely it's going to be someone that you know. So another stat that I think is really important for people to know and it's going to make people uncomfortable as well is that people often conflate pedophilia with offenses against children. So they'll think, well, I don't know anyone who who's a pedophile. Like I don't talk to anyone who's a pedophile. So like my kids are safe. And um, so uncomfortable fact. So 40 to 50% of people who offend against children are attracted to the children. But that means that 50 to 60% of people who offend against children are not attracted to children. So it's one where like that is an uncomfortable fact 
it's a stat that has been replicated a lot. And this is also like the numbers I'm giving are the more like liberal ones. Other studies find that 75% of people who offend against children are not attracted to children. But the more accepted one by researchers is the one that I said the first time. So, but people will think like, because they don't know, or they think that people aren't attracted to children, that their children are safe. And like attracting children is not the number one thing that's going to predict whether a child is offended against. So, yeah. So again, uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable fact, but it's important for people to know. And the very last one that I want to highlight is that another thing that people will think is that people that offend against children or offend against others sexually were sexually abused themselves. So they'll think, well, no no one that I know was sexually abused, so therefore my, my children are safe. And it's like, no, actually being sexually abused does not predict offending sexually as an adult, like basically at all. Um, it's one of like being, if you're abused physically, if you're neglected, those, those relate to offending as an adult, but being sexually abused specifically overall in the vast majority of the research studies on this area do not predict sexual offending as an adult. So it's actually, I don't know. Wow. Yeah. That's important to know. I know. It is. I hear that like when people, like, as I said, like when I talk to people about my work, yeah. so many people will say this one to me. That's interesting because I feel like that's what people assume and think. Yeah. Okay. So the next thing that we're going to talk about is how to not approach the topic of body safety with children. So I know you had mentioned before that there's things that people like it's very common uh, for parents to say or do with their children um, and and that it's not always a good idea so what should we not be doing yeah so the really big one is that people typically do good touch bad touch um, which on the surface seems like yeah a really great way to approach this because you know some touches are good some touches are bad Um, But this can be really confusing for kids because if you actually break it down, good and bad are very abstract concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, And children kind of go a little bit black and white with good and bad. So normally they view good, bad as I'm in trouble or I'm not in trouble or this felt nice or this did not feel nice. Um, So as a result, it's just really confusing if you do good, bad. Um, They're loaded words for children. Um, And then... One of the big things with good touch, bad touch is that it makes kids think that only bad, like bad touches are ones that physically hurt them. But if you actually look at trends within sexual abuse, most, the vast majority of the time, sexual abuse is not painful for the child. Most of the time it's like, it's outside the body. It's yeah. Like touching heavy petting. It's very, it's less common for the touches to be painful. So that confuses children. Because maybe they're having like their stomach or their chest stroked and they're like, well, kind of like it feels like good. It doesn't feel bad, but I'm uncomfortable and I don't want this to be happening. So the good bad language is it's confusing. Another thing that parents do is they really overfocus on genitals. So they'll say bad touches are when someone touches their genitals or makes their gen- genitals hurt. Um, but as I said before, like a lot of my clients who've offended against children, like they're rubbing backs, they're rubbing chest, like they're doing things that aren't genitals. So by telling kids that it's bad if someone touches their private areas, that's 
not actually a full picture of what potentially could happen. So those are the main things that people focus on that, you know, cool, but good, bad, try to stay away from that language. And it's not just about the genital region when you're talking about childhood sexual abuse. There was a Cochrane review that was done that I really like on the best prevention programs for childhood sexual abuse. And they said, best things to do, teach safety rules, teach body ownership. Body ownership is the bodily tongue that we talked about already. Teach the names of private parts. Um, Teach distinguishing types of touches, so uncomfortable and not uncomfortable touches, and types of secrets as well as who to tell. So this is kind of what they focused on in school-based prevention programs. And they found when the programs were focusing on these sorts of topics, um, one of the fears that parents sometimes have is that if they teach these things, their kids are going to get scared. And they actually found, like right after the program and long term, the kids that took part were not more anxious. They were not more fearful. Like they took what they needed from the program and they continued on with their lives. So by talking about these things, you're not going to scare your kids. You're giving them tools. Um, Another component of the Cochrane Review is that they said, you know, there's a lot of really positive outcomes. So like the people are reporting more, there's a lot like lower rates of abuse in the kids that took part of the program. However, they only look, I think it's just like a year out. And they said, and they noticed there is like a dip, like for any single program that we do, the highest gains are right after the program. And then, you know, there's drift for anything. So they mm-hmm. said that they really need to integrate parents in to reinforce these things that they teach in the program for longer term gains. So mm-hmm. you can't just let the school be in charge of this. It really has to come at the kids from multiple angles so that they get a lot of opportunities to practice and they get a lot of reinforcement for these sorts of skills that we will talk about next. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, next is how to approach the topic of body safety. So what, you know, what can parents do? Yeah, so for this one, I'm highlighting like four main areas that again are like the biggest bang for the buck. Um, There's tons of different things you can do. Um, There's some resources that um, we'll be sharing that you can look into that have like, you can go a gazillion different ways with it. But these again are the biggest ones. So the four topics that I'll be mentioning here are teach the correct name for body parts, teach them that body parts aren't for everyone to see, distinguishing between secrets and surprises, um, and then boundary setting and telling people no, which is that bodily autonomy piece that we already touched on. Um, So those are the four big ones. So body parts. (laughs) Um, Basically, you're doing your kids a huge disservice by not teaching them the correct names for their body parts. If you make up names, you make those terms shameful and you make it difficult for your child to communicate. So if they have a penis, it's a penis. If they have a vulva, it's a vulva. If you call it like a cookie or you call it whatever other like cutesy name, no one's going to know what your child is talking about. So this is number one thing. And it's one where like this is uncomfortable low-hanging fruit I guess because a lot of us were taught like when we were younger like you don't say these words like they're dirty words and like no they're they're body parts so the biggest thing that I would say is don't make a big deal out of it but just call a body part what a body part's called so for my daughter again infant so I'm training myself 
um, when she's having a bath and we're cleaning whatever body part she has, I narrate. And again, that's kind of with speech. I like to just completely wash her with language to try to really increase that component. But then again, double service also helps her with her bodily autonomy. So I'll say, we're cleaning your hair. Oh, now we're going to clean your armpits. Oh, we have to clean your vulva now. Got to get in that butt. Got to clean all the whatever off. Like, oh, let's get your toes now. So it's not a big deal. You just kind of put it in for however you would want to. So, but it's one where like the biggest thing that I want, that I would love people to take away from this is just use the correct names. (laughs) Because as a service provider and someone who's seen these cases and has seen cases not get through trial for whatever sort of reasons in terms of admissibility of evidence, this is a big one. Yeah. So, and it's, I like how you said when you're not calling it by its proper name, then it creates shame around what that is, which is so true. Like mm-hmm. if you're growing up like, Oh, like, you know, not comfortable saying those words because your parents never said them. And it was just not something that, you know, was brought up and, you know, we used some like make-believe word for it, then that is like that. And I'm sure that's how most of the people listening grew up. Like, Oh, totally. It's definitely generational. Like it's, it's, I can see where that becomes a huge problem. And then those body parts are kind of like, you know, Ooh, like don't talk about that. Like shameful. Yeah, exactly. It's like something happens to that. You're like, Oh no, like that's the secret body part. I I can't say that whatever happened. Yeah, it creates, yeah, it creates shame. And that's, we don't want our kids to be ashamed of their bodies. All right. So the next one was teaching them about, well, teaching them that body parts aren't for everybody to see. Yeah. So this is typically the the private part discussion. Um, And personally, I have like issue with the private part, because as I said above, it's not always about the private parts, quote unquote. Um, if you're looking at sexual abuse or things happening to your child that they don't want to happen to them. So in terms of what you can do is that I think that was it for so the boundary setting. Oh, that was a hard word to say, apparently. <laughs> um, so instead of kind of the private parts, you know, quote unquote, aren't for everyone to see, kind of say, you know, there's boundaries around these body parts. So parents can see the like the genital areas if you're providing care. So if you're helping with a bath, if you're helping get dressed, and this is important since like to provide boundaries within this, because as I said previously, more than likely if a child is to be offended against, it is the known person. So you don't want to say parents can see them and touch them whenever they want. It's parents can see them when providing care or doing something that you need help with. So it's one where like you can't go into the middle of the room in the middle of the night and see that's not within the boundary because that's not providing care. So giving that boundary kind of allows kids to understand when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate for parents to see or touch. And then also, when I said earlier, helping kids get involved in their own self-care. So as soon as they can clean their genitals, they clean their genitals. That is no longer your role. When you're potty training, as soon as they can wipe their butt, they wipe their butt. No longer your role. Mm. So just kind of teaching them those boundaries. And the goal eventually is that you do not interact with their genitals anyway, because they are taking care of those themselves. Um, Another boundary, doctors. Doctors can see if they're performing exams and when the kids are young, when the parent is present. And of course, this kind of goes as kids get older um, and they want to have more like involvement in their medical care. You can adjust that as needed. But for the young kids, parent present, doctors can see during exams. 
And, but overall, like those are kind of the only two exceptions that I would give. And I'm sure there's other ones that you can come up with um, if you really wanted to, but those are the big ones. And another component for teaching that body parts aren't for everyone to see is that it's not a one and done conversation. You don't just sit the kid down and say, these are the rules. Use the opportunity whenever you possibly can to reinforce this idea. So as I said, you want the kid to take over the care of the genitals in the bath. So as you're bathing them, be like, oh, you know, um, you were able to clean your, your bum the other day. So, you know, here's the washcloth because, you know, it's your body, it's yours to care for. And the goal is for, for you to be able to take care of everything. So just kind of like integrate it yeah. and reinforce whenever you can. And a big one for this one is that no one should touch their breast genitals or butt um, without permission. Because, you know, when they're teens and they get into dating, you know, yeah. there'll be permission in different situations that go on there. Exactly. But the big thing that people miss with this is that, yeah, no one should touch you, but you should not be asked to touch other people's breast genitals or butt. So a lot of people focus on childhood sexual abuse and they think that it's the adult touching the child, but it is also the other direction. Mm. So by teaching the kid that it's just people touching them, you're only doing half the, half the equation. So teach them the other direction as well. Yeah. So that's the other like really big one. Okay. And then Um, the next one I think you said was secrets, like body secrets are not okay. So what does that mean? Yeah. So Basically, um, I've actually like, I talked to one of my colleagues about this. She does a program out here where she teaches family reunification and um, helping parents whose children were sexually abused to like help prepare them basically to not be in the future to kind of build these skills. And apparently what they've been teaching lately are surprises, secrets, and privacy. Hmm. So I was like, oh, interesting. So basically... Um, and again, this is more nuanced. So for younger kids kind of just go with surprises and secrets. So a secret is something that's kept quiet for a long time. And if that secret's revealed, it would make someone unhappy or someone could get hurt. So you can also teach kids that there's safe secrets and unsafe secrets because kids like whisper, they say things that are secrets that aren't really secrets. Like it's definitely part of play. Um, but basically if someone tells them never to say something, because if they do reveal it, they'll make that person sad or they'll get that person in trouble or the child will get into trouble. So some sort of negative outcome, that is not an okay secret. Mm. And especially if they are asked to keep a secret about their body, that's not an okay secret. So just kind of like blank slate. If someone tells you to keep a secret about a body, like to tell a parent or a trusted adult. So in regards to this, so secret, take home, long time, if it's revealed, there's a negative outcome for someone. Surprises, on the other hand, because this is hard for kids, right? Like this is a complicated concept. But surprises are things that are kept quiet for a short time, but after they're revealed, the results happy or positive. So this is like, oh, I got daddy this for Christmas, but it, it's a surprise, so let's not tell him. Mm. So for the really young young ones, Um, That's kind of the language that you can use. And at home, try to use the word surprises instead of secrets whenever possible to, again, train yourself. But then that also trains kids that later on when they're out and about, if someone is like, I need, like, you have to keep this a secret or else I'm going to get into trouble, that, wait, secret is kind of a flag in the brain. So that's kind of the goal is that children learn 
if someone said to keep it secret and it's about something about a body and they might get hurt or I might get hurt, that's not, that that's not okay. So I, I have to go tell a parent or adult. Hmm. So anyway, so it's kind of an interesting idea. I was like, oh, that's like a, I really want to integrate that into my practice yeah. as well. Like that was really neat. But then the other side is when they're older um, and third one you can add in is privacy. So again, like if you have like a two-year-old or a three-year-old, like they're just learning words, like don't overwhelm this. Like these are like heady concepts, but privacy is respecting a person's personal space and personal information. And these are kind of privacy is more of like a cost neutral kind of thing. So it's information that it wouldn't really cause harm if you reveal it, um, or if you decide to like keep it on the down low. So it's kind of like, it's a more of a neutral thing. So these are family discussions. So maybe you have a family discussion, things are really tight. You need to like cut off the TV or cut off the internet. You don't really want your kid going to school and being like, my family can't afford the internet. Like that is a family discussion and that's private. So kind of like giving examples to the child where it's like privacy, like no one's really going to get hurt if they reveal that information, but it's private and it's respecting someone else by keeping that on the down low. Right. So, and again, that's something older kids, older concept. You don't really want to try to go with a two or three year old to teach that one. Mm -hmm. But if you can kind of switch it so that your language in your household is around surprises and privacy, and you try to kind of get the word secret out of your dialect, um, it kind of helps kids realize what, how information kind of chunks down and what is safe information that people should be asking you to keep on the, on the DL and what is unsafe information that people are trying to get you to keep on the, on the down low. Yeah. I love that. So yeah, I was just chatting with her like last week, we went on a walk and I was like, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I have to share this because that is such a better way to break this down. Yeah. Did you talk about the boundary setting and telling people no yet? Yeah, I basically only have like one other little point to add there. Um, okay. Oh, wait, I just forgot a point. So for the secrets component, make mm. sure that the kids know that they won't get in trouble if they tell a body secret. Right. So, and that's just something you can tell them. If you tell me any secret, I, I won't get in trouble or like you won't get in trouble and make sure that you actually act on that. <laughs> so yeah, you can't for say sure. you're in trouble and they get in trouble. So... Because there's actually, so if something does happen, around half the kids disclose to a parent or guardian. So 50% of the time, as the parent, you're the one that's going to hear about it. And maternal responses to having a disclosure said to you that were more like supportive, focused, and that resulted in the child feeling protected were more likely to result in positive mental health outcomes for the child later on in life. So how you respond really impacts long-term how, what happens. Yeah, anyway, yeah, boundary setting, telling people no. We already talked about this in depth earlier. Um, But basically, the only thing to add on with this one is that within the kind of sexual offending context, make sure that you teach kids that it's okay to say no to an adult if they're being creepy and if they're not listening to the kid. So there is no obligation for them to be polite if they have put in a boundary and the person is disrespecting that boundary. And teach them that listen to their feelings, listen to your gut. If you're uncomfortable, you can leave a situation. Phone me, I'll come pick you up, whatever it is. But yeah, just teach them that if someone is not listening and respecting their boundaries, that's not a person you really want in your life. Yeah, I love that. Um, So the last or one of the last things that you were going to tell us about was um, 
the funding that you receive for a research study that is likely going to be starting in the spring of 2021. Um, so did you want to explain what that was for and then get into your three resources that you were going to share? And I was going to leave them in the episode notes, of course, so people can find those. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. So we just found out this past week, I'm a co-investigator on a grant that we applied to within our province. And it's super exciting because we actually get the money. And as we talked about early on, it's hard to get money in this area. So super awesome. Um, The lead investigator for it is Dr. Skye Stevens. She's based at St. Mary's University in the psychology department. So the study, it's designed to evaluate the feasibility of a prevention program for people who are at risk of offending against children, but who are not involved in the justice system at all. So these are people in the community who have various risk factors or potentially their minor attracted or whatever the situation might be, but they're not criminally involved yet. So prevention program. So the funding is still like super fresh. So, cause I said, we only got like four-ish days ago. Um, so we're currently in the early stages of development of the project, but we're big part of the project is that we're going to have supports in place for people who would like to access this sort of service. So we're going to be releasing more information on the study, like kind of spring, summer-ish. So if you do have interest in kind of like following this study, finding out what the results are at some point, whatever it is that you want, um, it's a study that it has been announced already. So you can Google uh, Dr. Sky Stevens, uh, St. Mary's University, and you'll be able to kind of keep tabs on it if you have any interest in following along with research. Yeah, so super exciting because yeah, yeah, funding's for always sure. exciting. <laughs> Money to do research that it is hard to come by. So congrats on that. That's awesome. And so your top your your three resources. Um, you can just say what those are, and then I'll have links to those in uh, the episode notes as well. Yeah. So the main ones that I want to highlight are there's a website called Stop It Now. So it is jam-packed full of resources for parents as well as service providers, educators, what have you around yeah, sexual abuse and like how to talk to kids about different issues. There's like what they like handouts, like sheets, different things, worksheets, that's what it's called. Various things. So it's just a jam-packed website if you have any interest in this topic and you want more information. Another one is there's a research group called the Moore Center for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse. And it's located at John Hopkins University. And John Hopkins is one of like the research universities. So I'll put a link in there. So again, they have tons of resources. And then they actually have a lot of resources, I believe, for people that are minor attracted or who want to not offend. Um, So again, a super great resource. And then the last one will be the, the TikTok that I really like, the Once Upon a Mama one who has a lot of different yeah resources and little videos and how to actually encourage bodily autonomy and have these conversations and discussions kind of embedded in play and embedded in regular life as a parent so yeah tons of things out there for you awesome well thank you so much we hopefully when I publish this people listening won't know that we had technical difficulties (laughs) with any luck yeah, but we had major technical difficulties, so I'm happy that it looks like we are finished and everything is going to go well, thank God. Um, 
But yeah, thanks for bearing with me and my crappy Wi-Fi. It turns out I was on the wrong network in my house. But anyways, I will use my editing skills and hopefully nobody will notice. But yeah, this is such an important topic and it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's uncomfortable to hear about, of course, um, but it's so important. So I really hope that a lot of people listen to this and, you know, if they want more information, they take a look at all the resources. Um, but yes, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me and with all of my yeah, listeners. Yeah, no, I had a lovely time chatting. So, and hopefully people are able to kind of take from this some skills and some techniques that are easy to apply in their lives. 